Welcome to Personal Landscapes. I'm your host, Brian Murdoch. You can find links for today's episode and other conversations on Books About Place at ryanmurdoch.com. Lagos, Nigeria is a massive city with massive problems. It's plagued by traffic jams, power cuts, street gangs, police extortion, and widespread fraud. I've always thought of it as a place to avoid, but I came away with a very different impression of Africa's largest megacity after reading the book we're discussing today. I'm joined by Tim Cox, author of Lagos Supernatural City. His book shares the story of six incredibly resourceful people and their efforts to survive and thrive amidst the chaos. I think you'll find them both fascinating and inspiring. We spoke about ancestral spirits, the importance of community networks, and the desperate need to hustle without getting hustled yourself. So let's set the stage for those who aren't familiar with this part of the world. Where is Lagos? Lagos is uh, on, along the coast in the Gulf of Guinea. It is the it was the former capital of Nigeria before it became so dysfunctional that they moved the capital in, in the 90s to Abuja. Uh, but it's still very much kind of a commercial hub of Nigeria and arguably of, of the region as well. It's a city of of 20 million people according to the best estimate but it could be a lot more uh, or slightly less it's a place that his reputation kind of precedes it as a place kind of beset by crime and dysfunction and to some extent the stereotypes are true but there's also a lot more to it than that um it's a place which i lived uh, between um 2011 and 2015 and have gone back to visit several times since and it's a place i have a lot of affection for you've described it as a city defined and menaced by water what do you mean by that yes um so it's at sea level uh and spread around the fingers of a, of a lagoon uh, connected to the the sea connected to the gulf of guinea and so um whenever there's a a, a tiny bit of rain it floods uh, and they keep building flood defenses and they keep, I mean, not particularly well always, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of land that has been kind of conjured up out of the water using uh, sand filling techniques. Um, but there's basically this kind of constant battle to keep the sea uh, at bay. And also the, the a lot of water comes down from from the rivers that connect into the lagoon as well. So during the rainy season, you'll, you'll notice sometimes... Uh, after a particularly heavy bout of rain, there are roads which just look like rivers. Uh, and I've actually once seen um, a guy in a dugout canoe uh, navigating what was supposed to be a road, but it was it was there was enough water that he could get his boat on it. So so yeah, it's it's a city that's constantly battling for its survival, really against uh, against the sea uh, and to a lesser extent against. The, the the rains that come that, that come down through the rivers so you've made a career reporting from all over africa perhaps uh, sketch that out for listeners who don't know you and then tell us why lagos what is it about this city that made you want to write a book about it i've been in africa really for the past two decades um and and i you know i it's sort of always a bit irritating when someone says oh i'm in africa but i really have been all over the continent so the reason i'm being non-specific is i started out in in East Africa, uh, in early sort of 2003, 
where I spent five years. Um, I just went out as a freelancer to Uganda. I was I just sort of started with it after uh, in, in a job in in London doing financial journalism, and I kind of realised it wasn't for me. So I just sort of packed up and left with a with a laptop and a notebook to start out. And so um, yeah, I, in in East Africa, I covered Madagascar, I covered um, Eastern Congo. Uh, a bit of southern Sudan. I was uh, sort of in the latter part of that time, the Great Lakes correspondent for Reuters, so covering uh, Uganda, uh, Rwanda, Burundi, southern Sudan, and eastern Congo. And then um, uh, I had a brief period when I was in Iraq for, for two years after that, in a sort of during the surge when they were trying to get it back under control. So that would have been about 2008. Uh, and then I uh, and then I went back to Ivory Coast to cover what was supposed back to Africa. I mean, uh, to Ivory Coast in West Africa to cover what was supposed to be an, an election that would resolve uh, a long uh, conflict, a long crisis, um, but actually ended up starting another war. So um, it was from there, uh, after spending two years there and being kind of worn out by the war and just generally um, wanting to go somewhere that wasn't uh, wasn't in quite such a a dire state although actually ivory coast uh was still sort of quite impressively um functional uh considering uh how, for how long it had been in crisis but just wanting to be somewhere where where this that wasn't quite so tense and so um got the job as the the nigeria bureau chief for reuters and then arrived and then of course uh, uh sort of the Boko Haram uh story the the story of the the Islamist militants who kind of took over the northeast flared up so that kept me quite busy um but Lagos was very much the kind of the economic hub and there, it was a sort of incredible sort of fountain of business stories and quirky cultural stories and so even though the news was happening in in Abuja where the politics is uh, uh, and and in the northeast where this this raging insurgency was, there, there was still plenty to do in in the city. And I just you know I don't know at what point I decided that it was worth chronicling as a as a city. I think it was um, I, I, I vaguely remember being stuck in a traffic jam on on the third mainland bridge. This is one of the the main arteries connecting the islands where a lot of people work, where the, the sort of commercial hub and where where a lot of people with money are. With the mainland where a lot of the workers are and um it it gets horrendous traffic especially during rush hour you can be stuck in it for up to sort of four or five hours if you're really unlucky and i just remember being stuck on it and there were people shouting there were horns blaring there was a hawker trying to sell me something in the windscreen i think it was windscreen wipers and i realized that some of the traffic was being caused by some uh policeman who was extorting a bribe from someone uh, and and they were disagreeing on on how much he should pay and I just at that moment just thought, how do they do it? How do people in Lagos deal with this kind of chaos day in, day out? Um, you know, it's a city which is, as I said, has 20 million people, but probably has infrastructure suitable for, you know, one tenth of that. It's a city that barely gets four hours of power from, from a day unless you have a generator. Um, you can be stuck in traffic for hours there's this sort of feeling that in order to survive you have to hustle so there's constantly you sort of feel like people have their hands in your pocket the whole time um and i just felt like i wanted to, to understand how people can not only survive but also thrive in that environment because 
it is an incredibly upbeat place as well. There, there's this there's this kind of charm and warmth and sense of humor about Lagos that I I just couldn't get to the bottom of. Like nobody complains, like they just kind of get on with it. And of course, there's plenty of uh, of bad temper that comes out when when people are frustrated or especially when the traffic and and there's you 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 can see uh people do get fed up and and angry and and just sort of frustrated with each other but at the same time it's just the the default setting is to be able to cope basically and i wanted to better understand what it is that enables people to cope with this level of danger this level of uncertainty and this level of chaos and and still kind of come out of it seeming very upbeat and, and in many ways a lot more optimistic a lot happier than uh i've seen people in in the west where where there is a lot less to complain about and it sort of took me a while to find the answer but the, it, it really comes boils down to this kind of ubiquitous spirituality or uh, and spirituality is of course a kind of vague word that can mean lots of things and 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 refer to a whole spectrum of of uh ways of looking at the world but um i mean it in a sort of strongly uh supernatural sense uh the sense in which you kind of believe that things that happen to you are controlled by um forces that whether that that be god or devils or 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 traditional spirits traditional gods and and that um that you can appeal to them to uh to change your fate and so really that's where the title supernatural lagos supernatural city came from the, the idea that um people face all kinds of challenges in this this city but um one thing that enables them to to face up to them to to cope is this kind of this belief in a higher power that that they can uh, appeal to which helps them deal with the anxiety and and stress of of that environment I want to talk about some of these different forms of faith, but to go back for one second, you mentioned this sort of hustle, hustle or die mentality. That's one of the things that struck me most from your book was the remarkable resourcefulness of the people. You say success depends on how big a share I can grab. So the thing is to hustle, 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 and do your best not to be hustled yourself. And you've got a great description where you talk about um, the immigration official hustles you for money to, to let you into Lagos Airport. The street kids hustle you for money to park your car in a public space. The policeman hustles you for money because it's the weekend and he wasn't paid on time and because he's holding a gun. You know, to, you you say to check your pockets, check your change, check the product you just bought that it isn't fake or poisonous. Make sure you get paid up front, but never if, if you can help it, pay up front. So tell us more about this um, this re- remarkable resourcefulness that allows people to survive in what seems like a barely functional place. Yes, it's it's this it's the, this kind of this sort of spirit of hustle. The the idea that that um they 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 have a saying in Lagos that that people say this is Lagos. They don't say welcome to Lagos because welcome to Lagos implies that a certain degree of warmth and a certain degree of we we might we we're going to help you out here. And and really, it's this kind of um uh, this idea that no, actually, you get there and and you're in the same uh, you're in the same kind of jungle as everyone else, and you need to compete along with everyone else, and uh, and competition is fierce, and the rules are not fair, and if you're going to survive it, you need to be hardened to it. It's an idea that sort of uh, is hardly unique to that city. I think I think there's this idea in in many big cities, right, that you need to kind of uh, move move with the pace, right? that that um, uh, you need to um 
be resilient, be resourceful, and, and in a kind of sort of very atomized individualistic way. Lagos, of course, being an African city, isn't quite like that because because there are family networks, there are support networks, there are communities uh, that you, that that sort of still exist. But at the same time, um, it's a very unforgiving place. It's a very harsh place, and it's it's somewhere where you can lose your shirt very quickly. And partly the reason it's like that is because uh, Nigeria's history has, has sort of set it up to, I don't want to say set it up to fail because that sounds too kind of doom laden, but certainly set it up to have a very challenging time. It was it was sort of cobbled together by the colonial powers by, from people speaking more than 500 languages. And it, it was it was always an uneasy kind of marriage between these different groups, especially between the north and the south. There's always been this this kind of feeling that there's the, the rivalry kind of dominates everything, right? It's very difficult to for people to cooperate because there are so many competing interests and rivalries, and and then you you throw into that mix. Uh, on the eve of Nigeria's independence in 1960, a, a massive oil discovery. And then this idea emerges that what I am competing for in life is a share of that money coming out of the ground. That money is fixed. That is, is not, it's not anything that anybody creates. It's not any, any, there's no amount of ingenuity uh, that's going to determine uh, whether it's successful or not. It's just stuff coming out of the ground. There's a limited quantity of it. It's coming out at a more or less uniform rate. And if I want to do well, I need to get my slice of it. And that also emerges, you know, because of the so-called oil curse, where oil kind of crowds out other uh, forms of economic activity. And so uh, that sort of shapes the hustle mentality, right? If you think that um, that there's a, a, a limited quantity of money that everyone is chasing, and really it's just about getting your hand on a slice of it, then you are more inclined to try and kind of game the system than you are to try and do anything creative because nobody gets rewarded for doing something that, uh, that, that, that that's kind of innovative or that might that might uh improve things it's it's the money's there uh but i i need to grab grab a piece of it so it sets up the the sort of the economics of of the place as this kind of zero sum game and i think that that is that that is that sort of combination of that uh very complicated ethnic and national rivalry uh that was always uneasy during the colonial times then independence just after they find uh oil uh, and and there's this just idea that I you know I need to that that that's that that I need to to stake my claim to that oil, and so you know that's where a lot of the kind of like, this idea of fraud and the four and nine it's sort of it, it's all it's all kind of connected four and nine being this the the what, what, the um the sort of infamous you know internet scams advanced fee fraud where I, I try and I want to ask you about that yeah yeah that's a, a remarkably creative. Uh... A, re- a remarkably creative form of hustle. Everybody in the West, I think, is familiar with that. So, what is that all about? Yes, um, and and it's sort of a slightly unfairly uh, uh, sort of uh, attached to to Nigeria because the, it, they didn't invent it. I think it was originally called the Spanish Spanish prisoner scam or something. Where, where it's been it's been around for a while, um, but the yeah. So so so. Um, you know, I, I I was kind of originally looking into doing that as a possible uh, finding one of these con artists as a possible character, and I decided not to because I felt like 
this is already such a um uh, sort of stereotypical picture of what Nigeria is like um that I did I felt like I didn't want to kind of feed that when there's so much more to it uh, and it didn't quite fit in with this, the theme of uh, spirituality at least not in a very kind of direct way and so um but I did interview some of these guys and I think what it, the, the the connection really between these other things I've been saying about how you know how warped the economy has been by oil is again it's this idea that I I need to rather than doing something useful that, that might sort of create wealth I, I, and I know that's a very controversial concept creating wealth but the idea that, that you know adding value in some way or doing something no the value is there the money's there I just need to to by hook or by crook to take my piece of it and so I think it's all it's all connected right that if you think that the way to get money is to um is to either take it by force or or through some kind of um scam and 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 there's no other way of doing it it then becomes natural that you will divert your kind of creative uh, energies towards a scheme that is is effectively about um defrauding someone uh, and then you add of course the fact that the, the the way oil uh has been managed by the state oil company and by the, the Nigerian politicians for so long uh is is in is itself so totally kleptocratic and uh and nakedly fraudulent um and and if you think of the way that the western banks have kind of colluded in that in 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 that fraud um it just sort of it seems to the average nigerian in the street well they're all doing it and they're making a, a fine living out of it so why shouldn't i um and so i see i see these things as all kind of linked up but i decided not to 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 go too much into that in the book just simply because it's just what everyone already thinks about nigeria okay so you can c- confirm then on the record that there isn't anyone at the un waiting to send me a large amount of money like i should just let that dream go <laughs> yeah i would uh, i i i would uh, probably just delete that email <laughs> okay another i have to say would uh, mention one more scam that you talked about um in part because I got in a lot of trouble in high school and I kind of admire the resourcefulness as much as I would never do something like this now the resourcefulness is pretty freaking impressive like you talked about a scam where they they break into someone's home when that person's not on vacation copy their title deeds create a forgery and then pose as an estate agent and sell that house to three or four people that's right that's absolutely amazing <laughs> yeah it, it's um it, and I and I thought it sounded like one of those stories that's kind of a bit of a myth and then I looked into it and this is actually what happens um and it, it's sort of partly linked to you know this this whole and and it, what very much shapes the narrative of of my book is is especially in the second half of these these disputes over real estate over who the land belongs to because especially as as um the city authorities try to turn Lagos into this kind of modern megacity as they call it um uh, there's this demand for land because you need to build roads you need to build airports you need to build blocks of flats and 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 things that that are going to make make the city you know deal with the city's chronic shortages of 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 all these things and so land becomes very valuable and um one of the first problems that say you know a foreign investor has when they're looking at, at, at Lagos is trying to figure out who actually owns what because um often you'll set up a project somewhere and um four people will come and say no well I've got title deeds to this and actually trying to figure out who has the correct ones is not a straightforward thing 
at all. Uh, that scam was a kind of very colourful way of of bringing out this 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 notion of of the ownership of of land and of the properties that are being built on this land as often being contested because of all the kind of fraud and double dealing that's been happening over the years. And so yes, there is literally a scam in which uh, you go away on holiday, someone breaks into your house, changes the locks either finds your title deeds and photocopies them uh, but to the standard of a master forger i should add or creates fake title deeds and then sells them to multiple people you come back from holiday and there are um sort of four or five different people with keys to your house uh and or with title deeds claiming that they that they bought it which is why when you one of the most striking things you see in in lagos is uh buildings which say uh beware 419 419 being being the sort of Nigerian uh it's the it's the number of the Nigerian penal code for for this kind of fraud right if you if you get into trouble for it that's why they call it that beware 419 it says this building is not for sale because uh, they they want to stop people from doing this to, to these buildings while you know either while they're away or if if they're an absentee landlord well speaking of, so speaking of property you tell a story in the book about a prince of the royal house of Olumegbom and it's yeah. tied up in this whole uh, issue of property ownership and development. So what's the role of those traditional power structures in Lagos today? Again, it's it's another thing which has been kind of contested over the years, but um uh when when the when the British first started when they first kind of took control of Lagos in in the mid 1800s, there were these there were these existing um sort of aristocratic power structures uh centered around two king two two um nations really the the yoruba nation which is what most people in lagos identify as although it's you know after all the um the influx of people from all over the country and other parts of west africa it's it's certainly by no means a, a kind of uniquely yoruba city but it has got a very strong yoruba culture to it and then there's the benin uh kingdom which is kind of known actually in the uk because of those benin bronzes that the british museum is always trying to keep um and, and not give back but which but which seized control of lagos and in fact they're, they're the, the king of lagos the Oba of lagos is actually uh from that benin uh he's not necessarily he might be be yoruba but it's, it's different people at different times it's not it's not a sort of straightforward lineage but the but the culturally it's very much part of that benin uh traditional empire anyway when the british or, or authorities started to, to take control of um of lagos and other parts of what then became nigeria they wanted to um do it in the you know the cheapest easiest way possible and that is always to cooperate with the local elites right and have them on your side uh but also make it clear that if they're not on your side they get crushed in, in quite in quite a brutal fashion uh and they get sort of protection from your empire in exchange for uh ultimately being uh, being you know deferring to it um and so uh the they the British kind of basically left in place this this structure which said this this these this Oba owns that stretch this Oba owns that stretch and so when Nigeria got its independence that kind of that structure kind of persisted uh sometimes formally sometimes informally there's been there's uh, was efforts by the central government to kind of remove their these privileges and say the government owns all the land but in reality it never really worked out that way um and so um it, for most of these places it didn't really matter because we're talking about an area of swampland around the city right 
Uh, now, uh, as the city expands frenetically, a lot of this swampland becomes very valuable. And uh, the Royal House of Olomegmont is is one of these. He has a, a, a claim to a stretch of the Lecky Peninsula, which is this part of eastern Lagos running between the lagoon and the sea, which is where the next hot new developments are happening. And it was useless sort of swamp and mangroves before, and now it's it's where everyone wants to live and um, uh, and is suddenly very valuable. And so uh, he has a dispute with a rival chief who's actually in that area. He's not an absentee. He's actually from that area and has backing of the local population. And they each uh, have a claim that their sort of deities are there, and so therefore it's their land. Uh, they try to resolve in court. It never quite gets resolved. And so um uh they end up uh effectively sort of fight fighting it out using uh using sort of uh and this goes on for years. Uh and so I thought that was a that was a, a nice uh sort of overarching story to to sort of explain the kind of land conflicts in Lagos and how they link up with uh, the 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 imperial history on the one hand. With with the sort of the the kind of competition for money and power that's always present in that city, uh, on the other hand, and then also the sort of spirituality because the, the, a lot of these claims to land are based on uh, these traditional notions that our families, uh, spirit, you know, deities, uh, gods are there, and therefore that's what entitles us to this land. So you talk a lot about the importance of faith in putting up with this mayhem and and being able to survive and cope in this kind of situation. And it seems to take many different forms and attach itself to a, a wide range of deities, but there's also faith in oneself. So tell us about Eric, who made his musical dreams come true by scavenging in a massive garbage dump. He's a remarkable character. He he is. Um and I and I I sort of I'm I'm sort of quite open in the book that I didn't actually discover him. He was discovered by the BBC when they did a documentary on on Lagos that, that the authorities absolutely hated called called uh welcome to welcome to lagos and i probably shouldn't be giving too much of a spoiler but basically the the doc the documentary kind of um launched his his singing career right so he he was on a rubbish dump for, for kind of 10 years and uh dreaming of being a singer but it was this kind of impossible dream that uh you know you're scavenging if you're scavenging rubbish from from a dump looking for recycling you can make some okay money but it's not going to be you know it's going to be enough to feed you and pay your rent uh, it's not going to be enough for you to sort of spend too much on recording studios that said he was saving up his money and going to recording studios and um and performing at gigs but it just never quite sort of went anywhere um and then uh, he 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 sort of w featured in uh, as one of the characters in this uh, this BBC documentary back in two thousand and uh, I forget I forget the date I think it's 2010, 2009, 2010. And then it sort of ch ch shifted his uh, his his chances a bit just by sheer um, uh, just by the sh the sheer chance of him being in the right place at the right time. And I, I thought the story was nice because it sort of brings out the precariousness of 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 lagos that that if he hadn't have been on on that uh, uh, if he hadn't showed up to, to work on that rubbish tip on that particular day to to scavenge for scrap and for 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 plastics he he may not have ever been noticed and and he may still be there so um uh this ties in with spirituality of course because uh, one of the reasons why people have faith in um in supernatural beings in these kind of forces 
that they can appeal to, whether through prayer or through making sacrifices or anything else, is because of uncertainty. And, and the more uncertainty there is in your life, the more likely you are to want to um, appeal to these forces. Uh, and he, his choice of, he tries everything. He goes to, to, he's a Christian sort of, but he also has traditional spirits as well. And he, he goes, because it's a very, he's not Yoruba himself, but he's actually Edo, which is the, from the Benin kingdom originally. But he, he, he goes to these, these, this, these witch doctors every now and then to try and, you know, and it's a lot of money. These guys don't, don't come cheap. He, to try and sort of, shift the balance in his favor because because it just seems so hopeless and impossible this dream and so yes i thought he was he was a nice example of of why people have need that kind of faith to to be able to cope with the uncertainties of life because your chances if you're relying on yourself uh and and pure uh luck just seems so stacked against you so you mentioned that he was a member of the Scavengers Association of Nigeria. What are these informal associations? The um, the National Union of Transport Workers was another, but rather than drive buses, they they take unofficial tolls from bus drivers. Yes, and and this ties in with the uh, this this sort of idea that uh, everyone's on the take, everyone has to hustle, and that and that again, there's a sort of fixed quantity of money out there and i need to grab my my share of it um rather than do something that, that will expand the, the 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 money or the wealth um and so uh, a lot of these associations are, are effectively uh, uh they call themselves unions but really it's a bit of a misnomer they're they're kind of uh effectively an, an extortion racket with uh, a sort of kingpin at the top who takes the the most and then everyone else down the chain taking them and and that's the thing about lagos that's quite striking is it, it looks chaotic it looks like a, a bunch of you know people in the streets just trying to to do do what they can get by however they can and 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 operating you know by themselves but there's often uh in the background a a, a sort of bigger person because if you want to for instance uh sell your wares on the streets right that that stretch of street is controlled by somebody and they're going to want their cuts and then they that person will have to give their cut up the chain up the chain and so um if it, it just sort of it, it kind of brings home how how this kind of the, the dysfunction of lagos forces people to operate in that way but also they're operating in that way then makes it more dysfunctional because it's bad enough trying to get public transport with the traffic you know anyway but if the buses are being extorted by by gangs that makes the tickets more expensive it slows things down and so it just kind of creates this sort of self-reinforcing cycle of um of difficulties yeah it's it, it i suppose it, it just it kind of shows that when 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 something something can look very disorganized very spontaneous very chaotic but there can often be um uh, a sort of structure of, of hidden forces hidden power that that um that drive it and and there's maybe an analogy between that and and the sort of supernatural right that um what appears to be the case uh, isn't always isn't always the case uh and that um if you want to get something done you've got to you you've got to appeal to forces that are not immediately uh present uh, when when you're when you're trying to do it what are area boys and what role do they play in all that so the area boys are one of these many um sort of informal uh, groups of they're kind of they're kind of like gangs but they're almost a bit 
they I wouldn't say they're especially violent. Of course they can be, but um but they control the streets. And if you want to do anything in those streets, you have to pay them. So if you want to park your car in in, in a in a parking space, they will they will take money for you to park it. And uh you just you know you really can't you can try and argue about it, but um you may find that your car isn't isn't there when you get back. They are they're sort of they've become a kind of um collective word for all these kind of informal networks of effectively kind of disaffected youths who are useful as a resource if you want to uh, achieve something uh, as a sort of more powerful person. So uh, the example of the the two traditional chiefs fighting over real estate, they because they try to resolve it in the courts and they either either they don't agree on the court or it's not really conclusive uh, what the ruling says. And so they resort to street gangs to fight things out for them. And so you go to these area boys and you say, well, look, here, I'm giving you this amount of money or a plot of land or, or whatever, uh, but you need to swear loyalty to me and to, to fight for me uh, in my rivalry with this other chief. And it's not just uh, traditional kind of landowning aristocrats who do it. It's also politicians. So around election time, area boys and, and the, the, uh, the, the gangs, the unions that control the bus stations and a lot of these kind of restless youths are effectively paid to to intimidate uh political opponents uh sometimes to 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 maim or kill they they don't they're not usually armed with particularly fierce weapons but they do sometimes have homemade rifles and they almost always have uh, knives uh and so they they are kind of hired to um defend political territory to to guard a ballot box that's being stuffed or to uh, intimidate people so that in a place where your rival is popular so that they don't come out and vote and so it's this sort of idea that the kind of mass of of kind of frustrated disaffected youth that have been left out of this this kind of heavily globalized highly dysfunctional oil producing economy um are a kind of resource for the big men for the for the powerful people because they can use that frustration and that anger to uh, to divert it towards uh, a target of their choice. I'm I'm I have to, I'm realizing during this conversation I'm making Lagos sound like a pretty sort of terrible place. And uh, it seems to be made up also of a lot of different, very different communities. Like it's not just this wealth disparity between shack dwellers and um, Victoria Island, which you say is home to one of the world's highest concentration of millionaires. But there's also different types of communities and. One that really stuck in in my mind is the stilt houses of Makoko, perhaps because of your descriptions of the morning light on the water, you know, and the slow pace of life there. So tell us about that as a bit of a counterweight. This seems like a really um, a difficult but almost pleasant place. Yes, yeah, it's it's uh, in, it's a it's a place which has always been very attractive to um, to writers, to architects, to kind of you know visionaries. And and also to uh, anyone with a camera because it just looks so picturesque. It's this slum of of maybe a hundred thousand, but I've heard estimates going up to two hundred and fifty thousand people, uh, which has been there for for many decades, more more than more than a century, uh, and which uh, it's kind of fishing people living inside the water on in these huts that are on stilts. 
And so they do everything in the water. It's their kind of open air toilet. It's their um, lively. It's the it's their means of transport. They they they've just recently got got into um, you know having education there. But traditionally, the the there was there were no schools there. So but now there is. Now there's there's a, a school with a jetty where the kids turn up on their boats. I felt like I had to. I wanted to do something about it because um, partly because it is probably the most uh sort of famous um place in lagos because of of this kind of uh riverine charm that it has to it with the with the light reflecting off the water and and the kind of views of the lagoon um but it is like much of lagos a pretty tough place like you it's it's um it's crowded it's very difficult to make a living. There's not there's not many jobs. There's there's it's community is everything, right? There's there are all these support networks where where people kind of look out for each other. The reason it was interesting was because uh, the the government regards it as illegitimate. So the Lagos state government has effectively been saying that they're squatters uh, and that they need to be uh, removed. And the root one of the reasons they're doing this is because it's it's on this prime location in between uh, uh, the airport and the islands where you could have all this kind of luxury real estate. Um, and if, as with every other part of Lagos, there are these traditional landowning families who have staked a claim to it uh, legitimately or otherwise and who want to develop it. But they can't, of course, if there are tens of thousands of, of slum dwellers there. And so that's where the, the kind of source of conflict in that story is. The sl- slum dwellers want to stay and the the, the, the government backed by some quite powerful uh, local businessmen want to remove them. Uh, and it comes to a head uh, when they manage to get money for a school because they're trying to get legitimacy. They've never really had much interest in school. They've never really seen the point of it because it's just, it's always seen, well, our way of life, we don't really need it. You know, you need to learn how to navigate use a boat uh, and navigate and go out and fish and repair a fishing net we don't need to learn these kind of cryptic symbols but of course they eventually do do learn uh through and and uh my main character noah is very uh instrumental in setting up this school and once they have a school they then use it to, because because they know that it's popular with expats and with journalists and people like to visit it because it makes such a nice photo of course, what would make a, an even better photo would be a, a kind of school on on water with all the kids in their cute uniforms. Um, and so um, he then uses it to create, bring publicity to to Makoko to try and prevent the government from coming and demolishing it. Uh, not totally successfully, because there is a, there is a point, and I don't want to spoil too much, um, where where there is a, a big attack on it by by the, the government to try and destroy a whole load of it uh and and yet that there's this there's this kind of backlash against that and it kind of you know as it stands it, it it's it's stayed also but it's it becomes a kind of mecca for these architects and these kind of urban visionaries and so there's this uh nigerian dutch architect who builds who comes up with a floating school you know again it, it it's one of the it sort of reinforces the problem that these people in Makoko always have with outsiders that it's not done in consultation with them he comes up with this wonderful design and it wins awards and everything and they they say well we're a bit skeptical of this it doesn't look like what something we could use and it's it's kind of got floating on barrels in the water and it looks quite fancy but anyway it ends up um uh collapsing because uh it's uh becoming detached from 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 the thing floating off and then kind of 
are kind of tipping over in the water when a storm comes along. So yes, it's 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 sort of a, a kind of story about aid as well and about whether, you know, the kind of help that we bring to people in these areas is really the kind of help that they want. Is he still there, Noah? Uh, Noah is Noah is now a uh, local councillor. He he ran for he ran for a council seat. Let you, again using his experience running this school uh, as a and also some of the money that he'd brought in uh, to to launch his political career. So now he's he's a when I I actually went to go see him. When was it? When I when I did a launch in I think it was November last year when I did a, a launch in Lagos of my book, and I brought him a copy and he was. Um, we had to meet in a in a, a hotel that was kind of one of these very well it's more like a kind of local motel type thing and the reason he wanted to do that is because he just needed to get get away from all the people constantly harassing him with problems or wanting money for this or that um and he knew that if if you know if if he sees if he meets a a, a white man that they, people will think oh well, okay now this might be someone bringing some aid or something and and so um, he was kind of literally sort of, you know, in in, in a room kind of hiding out behind, <laughs> behind the curtains uh, from, from people because he was so in demand. So he's done very well for himself, but I think it's brought quite a lot of, um, you know, a lot of stress in his life as well. I guess this is tied to something else you said, that individual fates are never distinct, but always bound up with the fates of the family and the community. So there's no separating someone's fate from that of his people. So it's a very different worldview from the North America I grew up in. But you can see how if, if he becomes successful, then suddenly he, I guess, inherits all these obligations to to help the people beneath him or related to him in yes. some way. And 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 of course, this is this is what makes uh this is what makes Lagos because the way I've described it, it does sound like a very kind of um zero sum game where I, I need to grab I need to grab my thing and I'm competing with you and it all sounds very individualistic and atomized but underneath it there are these patronage networks that are that kind of in a way they 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 sort of they 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 kind of feed this corrupt behavior because I need to acquire resources in order to maintain my my network but at the same time they also kind of cushion the blow so if I'm if I'm a big man um to use that sort of slightly um uh awful kind of uh, stereotypical word uh phrase it, it, i i need to to be able to feed my followers i need to be able to provide for them i need to give them school fees and and uh and you know sometimes hospital expenses when they're sick and um and so a lot of the purpose of acquiring resources and, and competing in this very hectic environment is so that i can share it because um uh power is nothing without uh, those kind of, that, that that ability to share the wealth you have and 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 I think when when the elites moved to Abuja and kind of locked themselves in their massive houses uh, from from Lagos, people felt this was a betrayal of the sort of African spirit of of um, of you know I I have if I have if I have wealth and power I that gives me a responsibility to uh, look look out for my community. And so, so yes, I uh, in in that chapter that you you refer to, that's where I was kind of looking at traditional Yoruba mythology. And the reason I did that is I wanted to because it's a book about spirituality. Um, there are forms of spirituality in 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 that part of coastal West Africa that long predate certainly Christianity, but also Islam, which obviously came a lot uh, earlier and which are based on on a kind of combination of polytheism and and what we would call um though I, I don't really like the word animism 
where it's it's kind of there's this whole that the world is very alive right everything is run by these kind of spirits and so i thought well i need to do it a, a chapter on the history of lagos anyway uh, which i'll do in the middle so that people are not kind of put off by it uh, and i thought well since i'm i'm doing that i might as well go back to the very beginning of time and look at the the kind of traditional yoruba mythology and and i brought in this creation myth and and so but really that was just to sort of set up um why the the culture is the way it is and one of the the things you realize in reading through this is as as you say that the uh the the idea of fate is a very powerful concept but it's not it's not understood individualistically because um there's this idea of of rebirth of reincarnation um i i, I will come come keep returning to my family and so really it's about the it's about how the community thrives and so uh, faith is partly individualistic it is partly i i want to succeed i want to be healthy but it's also i want my uh, my my community to thrive as well i also found it interesting that you said the these stories reflect the fears and dreams of complex farming societies forever just one crop away from failure and famine so this idea that there's these natural forces um over which you have no control sort of determine your fate and your future and that you you need to appease these forces to have them work in your favor or at least not turn against you so how would somebody go about appeasing these these types of forces can you give a an example of that or a picture yeah so that would that would depend on which kind of flavor of 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 faith you you subscribe to but that roughly there are two um really that the lagos is roughly and this is highly contested but roughly 50 50 muslim uh christian but with a strong kind of uh, polytheist traditional uh african uh west african spirituality kind of underneath that uh and there are some people who just don't who never even adopted the kind of western gods uh the western uh, uh monotheisms uh, or, or 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 even islam and there are, and, and have just always uh, practiced this this form of polytheism with the, with the traditional gods that you make sacrifices to um they are in the minority but even the ones who uh who have whose families or who have themselves converted to either islam or christianity often they'll hedge their bets right so you'll go pray in the church or in the mosque and then you'll also make a sacrifice to um to ocean or to shango the, the god of thunder to try and tip things in your favor so so there's this kind of pascal's wager that happens where it's like well what if i'm what if i'm you know okay i i've embraced jesus christ and and monotheism and i'm praying in the church but what if this other thing is true and uh, e either instead of or, or as well as uh my christian faith and so i'm gonna do that as well uh and so uh, an example would be um you know uh one of my cat one of the characters in in the book shegan when he wants to get a job uh driving a city bus which is one of the buses that is supposedly off limits by these kind of thieving gangs that come and extort money and he goes to church but he also goes and makes a sacrifice to i think it's shango the the god of uh, thunder and lightning who interestingly has a, a kind of double-headed axe that reminds me of thor's hammer because it, uh, because the when when there's lightning the idea is that the, the lightning kind of shoots off this this piece of metal um which i i always found that that cultural parallel uh, obviously must be completely coincidental but very striking so what would that look like if you um 
you want to go and appease one of these gods? Do you find sort of a traditional priest or like a shaman for lack of a better word? Yes, yeah, yes. A sh- a sh- I think a shaman would be would be a, a a good a good word for it. They call them a bab- babulao in in Yoruba, which is uh, like a, a a witch doctor or medicine man. Um, and I did go to one of the well, I, I went to to see quite a few of them as part of research uh, and reporting for the book. But um, for instance, there was Doctor Usman Moody, who who Eric uses to try and tip his 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 uh, chances of becoming a successful musician a bit more in his favour. And the guy, you know, he has you go in and it's actually inside a kind of fairly rundown building, very modern setting. It's not uh, in in a kind of mud hut in the in the village. Um, but uh, the inside of the room is very much like you can can tell as soon as you get there that this is a a, a spiritualist. He's got these wooden carvings of gods. It's got all kinds of fetishes and things like there was like a sort of bat or something hanging off the roof, and and uh, there's things with cowrie shells on them, and there's calabashes, um, the traditional um, things that hold water and um and vases and and you can sort of and and then one of the most striking things about it is because they sacrifice animals in these places there's this kind of smell like like a a, a sort of very um very unwashed butcher's shop uh because the blood has kind of been spilt and then it's sort of dried up and gone gone crusty and, and black um and obviously in in the kind of a tropical heat of lagos uh that it starts to sort of it does it does kind of have quite a smell to it and so that's that's the kind of place where you would go if you want to to do this this kind of thing and and again as i said it's not it's certainly not everyone who does it and i'm not even sure if that you could ever get reliable statistics on how many legoshans visit these kinds of places but the i guess the point is that just because you go to the, the church or the mosque doesn't mean that you don't go to these places because uh, even this guy um dr usman moody who was telling me about some of his his clients one of them was a church pastor who presumably in his sermons thunders against the the the, the sort of uh, traditional spirits as being evil and unchristian and being the forces of the devil but um in private had, a, had some kind of real estate dispute with someone else and was going to this guy to try and uh you know i don't think necessarily poison him but certainly do do something harmful to him that's interesting so it's almost like different gods govern different things or different aspects of life yes very much very much like you know like uh the the, the norse gods that that are kind of the the heritage of of northwestern europe and and britain and um uh or or the greek gods that the, they're sort of associated with often with natural forces whose operation can can majorly affect your your fate uh, especially uh, as you were saying these complex farming societies that I that I mentioned in in that chapter on Yoruba mythology that, that they uh if if natural forces go against them that could mean that the whole village starves and so uh you take that uh that anxiety about the future and about predicting the future and 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 protecting yourself against its worst kind of excesses and you transplant that to uh a sort of very unforgiving rough urban environment like lagos where you're not necessarily going to starve uh if things don't go in your favor but you but you you might be in for quite a rough time uh and you can see how it fits uh, like a glove because uh again you've got a situation where you're y- 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 the outcomes that you need to to live your life and to do well 
are determined by so many factors that are beyond your control. Uh, and the natural human instinct is to want to appease them in some way and to, to appeal to reality effectively, to be kinder to you, to be gentler to you. Um, and that's where I felt, that's where I sort of saw that kind of, that very powerful supernatural faith that grew up in, in these in these subsistence farming societies uh, at work in uh, in 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 this city of of twenty million people. I also found it interesting how the um, these traditional beliefs and structures act as a form of social control in the absence of any sort of functional government. So the Zangbeto were a really interesting example of that. Yes, and, and Makoko is 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 particularly that that's the the the, the sort of river the, the kind of lagoon sides settlement that we were just discussing. It is particularly outside the orbit of. Um, of the authorities, the police don't even really bother going there. Uh, not not that if they the police do go, that that necessarily is a good thing anyway, because um, you hear about people uh, calling the cops because of a robbery, and then it costs them more just to get rid of them. And so, so it's, it's but 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 very Makoko has always been this kind of because the government doesn't recognise it uh, as legitimate. It's it's completely outside the orbit of. Uh, administrative and bureaucratic control and so if the, you want to keep law and order you've got to do it yourself and so they have these these they call them zangbetu and this is something from the voodoo religion which the the people from makoko brought from neighboring uh benin benin republic being the capital of voodoo and uh they are they are like the they're effectively masquerades which is what a lot of these um uh, traditional west african religions use to uh, to to express their beliefs in in the form of of ritual, where someone puts on a mask and effectively takes it, it takes the form of of the spirit or of the ancestral person or whoever it is um, that they're that they're appealing to or that they're trying to keep happy. The the, the difference with the the voodoo ones is that they they're sort of they're made out of straw, so it kind of looks like it looks like a guy in a haystack with uh with a sort of blank sheet where the face should be i mean it really is the stuff of um of kind of 1970s horror films the 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 idea is is that these guys that everyone knows who they are because it's the it's certain elders who play these characters when they come out but they they put the haystack on and they um and the idea is that the body disappears and is replaced by a spirit for the duration of the the ritual and the way they keep law and order is they come out at night when uh, someone has been accused uh, of some kind of crime and they come out and they effectively act like judges and they hear the the case for and against this person and then they they kind of make a judgment on it and and I don't know the 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 sort of uh quite how much uh, forensic detail they managed to to get before making these judgments but in the absence of any kind of court this is what you do and everyone respects them nobody because because they're so bound up with this traditional spirituality with these traditional beliefs, you don't dare cross them. And so actually it has one of the lowest crime rates in, in all of Lagos, Makoko, which may say as much about uh, policing as it does about uh, these these Zangbetu. And in, in amongst this whole mix, you've also got Christian preachers. Like It sounds like um, money-grubbing televangelists almost, but, but, but far from being seen as a sign of corruption, going after money and accumulating wealth is, is almost a sign of spiritual power. Like a sign that you you've been blessed by the gods. 
Yes, yes. So if you if you think of yeah, so they, effectively the business model that they're that they're seizing on was invented by uh, American televangelists in in the deep south. Uh, but it, it it again fits Lagos so perfectly because of uh, because of this this it it's, it has a lot more in common with you know the, the Christian religions that were brought to Africa and 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 to West Africa were are kind of very sort of hymn singing um, that that they don't have that charismatic element where you become possessed by spirits and you speak in tongues and and that stuff is much more like the traditional spirituality that people are used to and it seems much more lively much more useful much more practical than than kind of singing a kind of soporific hymn uh in a in a, in a church the way that anglicans and and catholics do and so you can see the appeal um and then you throw in the fact that that these guys are saying well if you believe in jesus you you might become rich because jesus wants you to have a car he wants you to to, to have a house and then you see this this pastor who has because he's made so much money from donations is wearing the finest suits and he's arrived in a um uh sports car or possibly even a private jet there are, there is there's a nigerian pastor called david Iodepo who has at least three maybe four private jets and and you say well this this is a, a man of god he he because of his faith god has blessed him with all this these riches and that could happen to me too so that so rather than resenting them for um uh exploiting uh people of course there are people that, that do that do that there is a big sort of backlash against these characters people um uh think well i, I that that's that's the, that's what i want to hitch myself to i that that's that's the ticket i want to be on because i could also become rich so that it sort of fits very nicely with this kind of this again that the, the because lagos is a very harsh place it's somewhere where you you need to, to it's an expensive place as well and you you need to make a living and it's very difficult to make a living there are so many variables against you there's not many jobs the the, the uh, it's you can lose your shirt so quickly so you 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 see something like that and you think well this is this this is going to improve my chances but people give a lot of their money to these churches they give you know they 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 say that it's supposed to be 10% of your income um which is effectively what their business model relies on is is people coming and saying yeah i'm going to part with 10% of my earnings to you which is you know that's like a pretty big tax effectively that's a huge sacrifice yeah so you've yeah. got a scene in the book where you you meet with one of these evangelist types and he wanted to give you some sort of exorcism and i found it very telling that you bolted out the door like you're you're hiding something from the rest of us tim <laughs> i it was you know it was a combination of and i i felt like i had to be honest about this that i that i i, I wasn't comfortable with it from the beginning and i i you know i i sort of thought well it'd be it'd be a, a sort of you know i was kind of a bit blase about it i thought well it'll be um it'll be kind of interesting you know but then when when you realize that you're going to be the person on tv being exercised and and i just and at the same time i also had an appointment on the other side of which i didn't put in the book because it kind of spoils it but uh that which i had to get to and i so i was feeling the sort of time pressure and um and i thought i don't know how long this is going to go on for and, and i i did honestly wonder whether there was some technique he uses whereby i'll start collapsing and then i won't remember things and 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 i'll be cleansed and i and i might start you know i just i i think i doubted that i would ever start believing in in that particular uh brand of christianity myself because it's just so far from anything that i that i would consider um uh you know backed up by 
by you know sound philosophy or uh, and and it's a sort of spiritual message that's very contrary to anything I I I would go for but um at the same time you just you know I just wasn't sure so yes yeah, so I, I I kind of thought right I can't do this I need to to get out of here because also there was so much noise there was shouting and I and I came out and I thought well I've kind of spoiled it now and then I thought no I haven't I just I just need to be honest I just need to write uh in 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 this chapter that I that I was going to do this exorcism and then I backed away from it um and and but you know partly out of just being a bit scared but freaked out by it um I, I should add actually that I'm I don't feature very much in in this book right so most of the the book is about these characters and I don't come into it at all except at the very end where you can see me interacting with them a bit so you can see that I, well, effectively that I'm not just making it up that I'm I'm kind of uh that I did my my groundwork my reporting um but really you could have almost lost I felt like I could almost have lost those chapters with me and have not lost too much but I just felt like it was important to me that people know that I actually spent a lot of time with these people yeah I thought it was effectively it gives a sense of you interacting with the people puts sort of a different face on them as well yeah yeah that was that was a, and and I yeah and again I I because I I I did initially sort of toy with it being my kind of journey through the city is this kind of you know flaneur but I, I thought my life is relatively comfortable in Lagos compared to some other people's I'm not on the extremes uh uh okay yeah, I'm, a, I'm a journalist and that's always a, a sort of quite a profession that people find interesting but I just I didn't feel that it, it and also as an outsider it just seemed a bit rude actually it seemed like this is not this is this is my adopted city but it's not my city and so it really needs to be told through the eyes of these of these six characters um and and with me coming in just a little bit around the periphery just so you can see uh that I'm that where where my voice is coming from I guess yeah there's so many incredible inspire and inspiring stories in this book but you feel back uh, the curtain of a place that I had no desire to go like when I think about trips to Africa, I was always drawn to desert places, but, and, you know, looking at the, that corner of the map, I thought I'll avoid Lagos. That's kind of a dangerous shithole. And I, I came away from your book with an entirely different impression of what seems like a very interesting place. So thank you for that. And thank you for taking the time to tell us about it today. Thank you. Thank you very much for, for having me on your show as well. Thanks for listening to this episode of Personal Landscapes. If you like the podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes and subscribe through your favorite app. You can find links to today's podcast and more conversations on Books About Place at ryanvernorn.com. You'll also find a donate button if you'd like to contribute to the costs of the show. All donations are greatly appreciated.